here at the upper room, we are going straight through the Bible, chapter a day, right? And so we come together every week and we go over the seventh chapter that we've studied this week. And so we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 24. If you'd open with me, Leviticus chapter 24. If you haven't been reading along, you've been missing out. You have been missing out. Remember, the book of Leviticus is, the theme of it is what? Holiness. Thank you. Gosh, it, it's like I have to, every, every week I have to remind us, because I think we forget that when I put my arms out in this awkward, like, motion, like, let's, let's dialogue, family. I don't, I don't want to just be talking at you. Let's, let's have a conversation a little bit. So holiness is the theme of Leviticus, right? And we're specifically looking at two things about holiness. The first is the holiness of God, or rather three things, I'm sorry. The holiness of God, the holy standard for his people, and our sin, or the ways that we fall short of that holy standard, right? Holiness, as far as God is concerned, or, or God's holiness, is a little bit different than our holiness, Our holiness is defined as being completely separated or set apart for God. God's holiness, though, is being completely pure, completely holy, completely sinless, completely set apart from everyone and everything else. God is on a pedestal that never ends right? A lot of times we put people on pedestals, right? And we look at them like, oh, you're so special and, and you're way up here and I'm down here. God is on a pedestal too, but he's on a pedestal that never ends, right? He is completely set apart from us. It talks about in Isaiah that as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are God's thoughts and his ways above our ways and our thoughts, God is completely separated and holy and pure and set apart from us. And so God's standard for us is to be holy as well. And that means to be set apart as well for him. That we don't look like the world, we don't act or talk or think like the world does, but instead we live our lives in a manner that's pleasing to God. We live our lives in obedience to him. Over the last couple chapters uh, of Leviticus, last week, you remember, we looked at, at chapter 17 and Aaron brought the word. Then as we read through in this last week, we see a couple of different sections about different specific pieces of holiness. Specifically, uh, there's a couple about sexual purity and sexual holiness and, and these rules and, and rituals and regulations for being set apart and being sexually pure. We see uh, the punishment in chapter 24, child sacrifice, and again, punishments for sexual immorality. And then we have a, a chunk of scripture in chapter 20, starting in verse 22, where God is calling out Israel to be holy. You remember that what we're studying, the theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. We're looking at the the holiness of God and the holy standard for his people. And so here we see the the holy standard in a sense, or, or God calling us out to be holy. In chapter 21, we see specifically the holiness of the priests. They had to be especially set apart, especially sanctified. And then as we get into uh, chapter 22 and specifically chapter 23, we see all of these different feasts and celebrations and different ways that God has laid out for us to celebrate him and to remember him. And now we get into chapter 24. Let's pray as we dig into God's word. Father, I pray that your word would really come alive to us in this time. That we wouldn't be reading words off a page, but that you would truly speak to our hearts. Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified in this time, that you'd be lifted on high. Because you've said, if if the Son of Man is lifted up, you will draw all men into yourself. Jesus, please do that tonight. In your precious Son's name, amen. 
Leviticus chapter 24, we'll start reading now in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Pardon me, you shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. You shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion of, as a as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. We'll pause there. So we have these two randomly placed, it would seem, commands about how things are supposed to be run in the tabernacle. We've just had an explanation of all of the different feasts or celebrations that Israel is supposed to uh, uh, celebrate as unto the Lord, all the different parties for, for God. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 25, you look at the Sabbath year, this this one year, every seven years, that they were just supposed to rest and not uh, work. They weren't supposed to till the land. They weren't supposed to plant crops. They were just supposed to let the land rest for a year. And so, awkwardly, it seems, in chapter 24, we have these two commands about how the tabernacle, how things in the tabernacle are supposed to be run. Now, when we started studying the book of Leviticus... You remember, we were all gripped with a little bit of apprehensiveness because how on earth can Leviticus apply to us? But let's look at how these few verses here about how the tabernacle is supposed to be run in the Old Testament, how it applies to us today. Because you remember as we've studied the the tabernacle there at the end of Exodus, you remember that the tabernacle was not only the place where God dwelt then on earth, But that was only building phase one, right, of God's dwelling place on earth, was the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Building phase two was Jesus, where we saw in John chapter one, that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14 of John chapter one, that the word became flesh and dwelt, or in the Greek, tabernacled among us. Building phase two of the tabernacle was Jesus And now what's building phase three in a sense of the tabernacle? The tabernacle where God chooses to dwell on earth. Where is that now? It's in us. It's in the church. We are in a sense the the new tabernacle, so to speak. And so how things are run in the tabernacle in the Old Testament is always speaking to what's going on or what should be going on in the church today. So let's break this down now. Chapter 24, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. We'll pause. Okay, so what's going on here? Okay, you remember when we studied the tabernacle, the tabernacle is a big tent. And in this tent, it's divided into two rooms. The first room is called the holy place, and the second room is called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. What's inside the holy of holies? God, and specifically what piece of furniture is in the holy of holies? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it, which is where God chose to, in a sense, dwell in the camp of Israel, right? 
And so just outside of the Holy of Holies, we have the most ho- or the holy place. And in this holy place, there are two pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. Okay, are you ready? The first is a lamp and the second is a table. That's it. That's the only furniture in God's house. So in, in God's room, in a sense, he's got his mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. And in the, I guess, in God's living room, in the holy place where only the, the priest could go. I'm sorry, there are three pieces of furniture. There's an incense altar. So this is just where incense was burnt, a lamp, and a table. That's all the furniture God has in his house in the tabernacle. And so this one piece of furniture that we're specifically looking at now is a lamp. It's a lamp. Now, this seems pretty bizarre to us because we know that God in Israel, was, when he was leading them through the wilderness wanderings, he manifested or appeared uh, to the people of Israel in two ways. In the daytime, he appeared as a pillar of cloud. And in the nighttime, he appeared as a pillar of fire. Amen. Why on earth is there a lamp in God's house? Was it too dark for God? Did he, was he stumbling around and couldn't find his way around the altar of incense? And so he had to, to make sure that a lamp was put there? No, not at all. The lamp was not there for God's benefit, but rather for ours. There's two things about the lamp that I want to point out. The first is that, practically speaking, the lamp was placed there so that the priests would be able to enter in, whether it was daytime or nighttime, and come before the Lord. Whether it was day or night, the priests would be able to come boldly into the holy place and offer incense uh, before the Lord, which were symbolic of the prayers of the people, right? So they were able to come in and pray at any time, whether it was day or night. But the deeper thing that's going on here with this lamp, let me explain a little bit what this lamp was. It was about five feet high, and it was made of pure beaten and hammered gold. So it was solid gold. It was about five feet high. And uh, from the trunk on each side, there were three branches, three branches that came off, and then the trunk sort of continued on. So there's seven branches that are coming off of this one big trunk. And on each of these branches, there's a little cup. And this cup is shaped like an almond blossom. And in this cup rests seven oil lamps. So this was the lamp that that shone through the night for for the priest to be able to come in and out of the tabernacle. It was supposed to look like an olive tree. It's supposed to look like this, this beautiful tree, and it symbolized this. That God, in the holy place, in God's house, in God's presence, was life, symbolized by this tree, and light. In God's presence was light. You remember... God is, is the source of all light. He's the one who created it. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Well, speaking of light, I swear I didn't plan that. Oh, there it went. Okay. This is the lamp, okay? <laughs> oh, man. Father, whatever's going on with these lights, work it out. So, yeah, Genesis 1. There they are. God said, let there be light. (laughs) And there was. So, uh, let there be light, and there was light. (laughs) Let me get my train of thought back here. Okay. So God was the creator of light. Right? And so this lamp was placed here to symbolize that in God's presence, in his house, was life and was light. 
In fact, from God and only from God do life and light exist. And they go hand in hand. You can't have life without light. Now, what do we find in the world? I'm not talking physically anymore, but spiritually speaking, what, what word would you use to characterize the world? Darkness. In fact, we say all the time, right? Man, these are dark times. This world is ruled by perpetual darkness. It's a dark place. But in God's presence, there's light. And so this lamp was to be refueled in a sense. It was lit every single day in the evening time, and it would burn all the way through the night until the morning when it would be extinguished. And so every day, Aaron, the priest, would go to the lamp and make sure there was enough oil in each of these seven lamps to allow it to continue burning through the night. Does this make sense? Now, in the same way, In the same way, as Aaron the priest was supposed to go and and intercede and minister to the people, and one of the ways that he ministered to the people was by continuing to allow this lamp, making sure that it had enough fuel to burn, right? So that he could go in and out of the holy place and pray for the people when they came to the tabernacle. It didn't matter if it was day or night. When they came, Aaron would be able to go in and pray for them. He'd be able to pray and intercede before the Lord for them and burn incense on the altar of incense, right? He would be ministering to them, not the people. The people couldn't go into the holy place. Only Aaron could, right? Aaron was supposed to be ministering to the people and interceding for them. In the same way, listen. Well, actually, let me say this first. Lost my train of thought again. Sorry. Even though Aaron was the only one who could enter the holy place, and he was the one who was supposed to check the lamp every single day to make sure it had enough oil to burn through the night, it wasn't Aaron that was going out and getting the oil. Who was it? Who got the oil? Well, let's take a look. In chapter 24, verse 2. Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that it may be kept burning regularly. So Aaron was supposed to do the work, right? But the people, the congregation of Israel was supposed to bring the supplies in a sense. They were supposed to bring the oil. Aaron and his sons, the priests, were the ones doing the work. But the people were not left out of the loop. In the same way, I want to encourage you, family, in this. Here at the upper room, there's no questioning it. uh, Every single week, I spend a great deal of time digging through and studying God's word, or whoever comes up to this mic to preach and to, to bring God's word. We go through and very carefully pull out God's word and study it and pour ourselves over it and put quite a great amount of time into studying and into preparation. We're supposed to be doing the work to come into to from this microphone preach God's word, but you're not out of the loop here. You're not out of the loop. When you go to church every single week, it's not your job to preach, right? It's not my job when I go to to church on Sunday mornings to preach the message. That's my pastor Greg Laurie's job. Not my job. But I'm not completely out of the loop there. What's our role? What are we to be doing? Listen, we need to be praying for the church. We need to be praying for the pastor. I love that the lamps were burnt off olive oil and that olive oil was supposed to be brought to Aaron by the people so that it could be put in the lamps, so that the lamps could be burning. Why? Why is that important? Olive oil, was that is what was used for anointing as well. Not only was olive oil used for the burning in the lamps, but it was used for anointing. And anointing someone and using olive oil to anoint someone was symbolic of God's spirit. 
And so what do we do when we bring olive oil, in a sense, to the church? Do we bring literal olive oil? No, because we, we don't have a lamp at our church that burns off olive oil. Please don't bring olive oil. We won't know what to do with it, okay? I'll have lots of, I'll have to buy a lot of pita bread to just eat the olive oil with. It'll be ridiculous and it's pointless, okay? Don't bring olive oil. But what, what's being said here in this text is this. Be praying God's anointing on the pastor and on the church. When you come to this study, do you just come and that's it? Or are you coming with oil? Are you praying for the other people that are going to be coming to the study that God would speak to them and speak to their hearts? I beg you, please pray for me. I share with you week after week about how Tuesdays are the worst days of my week. I love it because I get to be here, but all day long, it's a continual, constant attack, and it seems like it's a fresh attack every single week. This week, I just, I could not focus on anything. I went to lunch with Darren, and I couldn't even focus on our conversation. I'm sure he noticed, because we'd be talking, and I'd just, I'd lose it. I couldn't focus on anything at all today, and I have no idea why. And I'm sure that's been coming through in my message because I'm pretty sure I've been rabbit trailing all over the place. And so I pray by God's grace that you've been able to follow along. But I beg you, please pray for me. Pray for Robert and for, for Darren, for Aaron and for Jeremy who continually week or month after month get up on this pulpit with me and, and bring God's word. Pray. Pray that God would continue to bring people in. This is a coffee shop. It still continues to run while we're here. Pray that when people come in, that they would stop and listen, be ministered to, and that they would meet Jesus here. You're not left out of the loop of ministry. Be bringing the olive oil. Be praying for the church. Continuing on. Verse 5, Verse five. you shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them up in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people... Of Israel as a covenant forever. And, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Okay, real quick, what's going on here? So we have, we've just looked at one of the, the pieces of furniture in God's house, and that's a lamp, right? The second piece of furniture in God's house is a table is a table. On this table, it was, and by the way, this table is about 24 inches long, so about two feet long, about a foot and a half wide, and about two and a half, three feet high. So that's the table in God's house. And on this table, every single week, Aaron would put 12 fresh loaves of bread on this table. Six in each pile, two piles, 12 loaves of bread. Why? Well, what's the purpose of this? Was God hungry? No. God wasn't hungry. That, that's not what this is about. Why would God command this bread to be placed there? Here's why. It's a symbol of his provision. It's a symbol of his provision. Understand, when this command is given, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, are wandering through the wilderness, right? They're wandering through the desert. How did they get their food? manna from heaven. Every single morning, very, very early in the morning before sunrise, this fine mist would cover everything, and it was manna. It was bread from heaven. And the Israelites would go out and they'd gather this manna, and they'd eat it. And God miraculously provided for them for 40 years. Every single day provided this manna for them. And so what did God command them to do? God commanded the people of Israel to every single week take this, some of this manna and to make 12 loaves of bread out of it and give it back to him. 
Yes, exactly. And that's where we're going. Every single week, God said, look, I've provided for you. I have given you everything that you could need to sustain your life. I I am upholding you with my righteous right hand. You're wandering through the desert. You'd have no hope without me. Yet every single day, miraculously, I provide for you. And so what is being commanded here is that they would take some of their provision, some of what God has provided to them, and give it back. And give it to the Lord. And they would make these loaves and give them to Aaron. And Aaron would put them in God's house. He'd put them in the tabernacle on the table as a reminder that God provides. Listen, it didn't matter if after, you know, Israel inherited the promised land and eventually they built the temple and they were no longer being fed by manna from heaven, but rather they, they planted crops and they, they harvested wheat and they still had to make these loaves of bread every single week and bring them to Aaron, present them, and he would put them in the temple, which is like a, a permanent tabernacle, basically. And he put them in the table on, or put them in the tabernacle on the table. It didn't matter if they had a great harvest or a poor harvest. It didn't matter if they had a lot of wheat that week or not a lot, or that month or not a lot. It didn't matter how much God provided, they still brought this offering before the Lord. Now, was it much? No, it wasn't much at all. Twelve loaves of bread, ultimately symbolic of one loaf for every single tribe. That's nothing. This took no flour, really. It didn't take much. But here's the thing. It was something. It was something. God has commanded each and every one of us to tithe. It's not an option. It's not a request. It's a command. It's a command. What's a tithe? A tithe is 10% of all of our income that we set aside and we give back to the Lord and say, God, you have provided for me. So I'm going to give this portion back to you. Is it a lot? No, 10% is ultimately not that much. Think about it this way. When uh, you hear someone gripe or complain about tithing and, oh my gosh, 10%, seriously, God wants that much? Did you know that the, the Israelites didn't actually tithe 10%? Because besides the tithe, 10%, that's where we get tithe, it's a tenth, tithe, tenth, Get it? Besides a tithe, they had on top of that another series of mandatory offerings. So in total, the Israelites every single year, basically, gave 23% of everything that they brought in back to the Lord. 23%. It's a lot more than 10. (laughs) So the next time you hear someone complaining about their tithe, remind them it could be worse. You could be a Jew and giving 23%. God has provided richly for us. And it doesn't matter if one month to the next he's provided a whole lot or where it seems like maybe not enough. We can and should always give that portion back to the Lord. We should always give that portion back to the Lord. Why? Because it's a constant reminder, a perpetual reminder that he provides. Did you know that this is the only command attached to a blessing? Or I'm sorry, not, it's not the only command attached to a blessing. That's not true. All, pretty much all the commands are attached to a blessing. It's the only command that God asks us to test him on this. It says, test me. See if I'm, see if I'm lying here. See if I don't Open the floodgates of blessing on your life if you'll do this, if you'll give me your tithes, if you'll give me this portion. Is it because God needs money? No. God owns all the money. Sometimes we forget that. We, we feel like we own things, you know? It, it's like, well, I, I own my car or my house or I own my own small business. And uh, 
But all it is is a, it's a vapor in the wind. It could be gone like that. It's yours, sure, but not really. Ultimately, it's God's. The Bible says that all the cattle on the hill belong to the Lord. Everything that exists belongs to him. He has created all of it, and he could eliminate all of it like that. It belongs to him. But since he's provided for you, and since he has given you richly everything that you could possibly need, honor him with this portion. Honor him with this portion. Before we go on, I want to make one more observation about these two pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. You remember I said that there's three in the holy place. In God's bedroom, in a sense. That's a slightly heretical illustration or example, analogy. That's what I was trying to say. Slightly heretical analogy. But in God's bedroom, in a sense, there's the Ark of the Covenant. And in the living room, there's three pieces of furniture. They are the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the third is the altar of incense, okay? We've looked at two of them. The first one, the lampstand, constantly giving light, reminding us that he is the source of light and of life. The second, bread, symbol of his provision that he always provides for us. I'm so blessed that two of the three pieces of furniture in God's tabernacle are light and bread. Jesus makes two claims. He says in John 6, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. But if you eat a meal, never hunger. Jesus also makes the claim that I am the light of the world. Jesus is the lampstand. He's the light and life of this world. Apart from him, there is no light. Apart from him, there is no life. And he was the bread of provision for us, providing a way for us to be able to to be made right with God, to be reconciled with him, to be able to have communion with him. And that's the the next little part that I want to briefly just point out about this bread that's supposed to be brought. We see in verse 9 that it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. What would happen every single week? Because every week at Sabbath, the people would bring the loaves to Aaron. Aaron would set them on the table. What would happen with the old loaves? The priest would take them outside and eat them. They got to share a meal with the Lord. They got to share communion with the Lord. Jesus is our great provision. The body that was broken for us. Amen? Okay, let's do our best to in a very short amount of time, wrap up the remainder of this chapter. Okay, verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. We'll pause right there. What's going on? What's happened? Okay. We jumped from these commands, these... uh, I totally blanked on the word. We'll just stick with commands. We jump from these commands to now a narrative. This story, okay? What's going on in this story? This is something that really happened. There's this Israelite... And he gets in a fight with this other guy. Now this other guy, his mom is an Israelite, but his dad is an Egyptian. 
So he's not a, a full-blooded Israelite in a sense. And so he gets in the fight with this Israelite, and it says that he blasphemes the name. What on earth does that mean? Well, what does that mean? Okay, this is what it means. He blasphemed the name of the Lord. Okay, God's name was so holy. It was so pure and so revered, right? That the people of Israel would not even say his name. And in fact, they wouldn't even write it in its entirety. Which is why to this day, we still don't know for sure what God's name really is. All we have are the consonants, no vowels. They left out the vowels because they thought his name was too holy to even write. Those consonants are Y-H-V-H. And from there, we sort of insert vowels and we say Yahweh, right? Okay. God's name was so holy that not only would they not write it, but they wouldn't dare speak it. And so what did they do? Rather than calling God by his name, they called him the name. So it was sort of like the name which should not be spoken sort of thing. And every time they said that, it's like something out of Harry Potter, you know, like, we don't speak his name. That kind of thing, okay? And so they called him Hashem, which in Hebrew means the name, okay? So that's what's happening here. This half-Israelite, half-Egyptian guy has blasphemed Hashem or blasphemed the name of the Lord. What's the big deal about that? Why is that such a problem? I mean, why is that one of God's top 10 do not do's? In the Ten Commandments, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Why is that so important? Here's why. God's name was attached to his identity. His name was attached to his identity. This is something that's a little bit lost on us today because we name our children whatever is trending or popular or fun or sounds pretty or unique like flower or apple. Isn't that one of like Tom Cruise's kid's name is Apple or something like that? I don't know. One of these movie stars' names has a baby named Apple. Gwyneth, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Quentin. Gwyneth Paltrow named her daughter? Daughter, Apple. That's my pop culture uh, guru in the back. Always helping me out and correcting me on on my failed pop culture analogies. Okay, so we name people, we name our children random things. They don't make sense, okay? But a name in this time said so much more than what was trending or cute or funny or completely random, it had to do with who they were. It had to do with who they were. Which is why we always, you always hear people, you know, when they talk about meanings of names, it's like, oh, and their name meant this or or that or thus and the other. Why is this important? Because it, it spoke of who they were. It spoke of who they were. You remember Jacob's name was heel catcher. Jacob means heel catcher. Why? Because when he was born, he was grabbing onto the heel of his brother on his way out. They were twins, right? And so he was holding onto his brother's heel when they were born, always trying to pull his brother back and get ahead. And so they, they named him heel catcher. And that's who he was for his entire life. He was always trying to pull people back and get himself ahead. Until God gave him a new name, right? The same thing happened with Simon, who's later called Peter. Simon, I could lie to you and make up a cool definition for his name. I don't know what his name means. I, I can't remember. I'm sure I was told once. I didn't look this up. Not in my notes, okay? But God renamed Simon to be Peter, which means little rock, little pebble. Because when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say I am? And, and Peter said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're Elijah, and others say you're just another prophet. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, what you've said is not from you, it's from the Father. You are little pebble." 
and on this rock I shall build my church. And that's what Peter was, right? I mean, he was this little pebble. He was a chip off the old block in a sense. Understand to God, names mean a lot more than just something clever or something cute. It has to do with who they are. And when someone blasphemes God's name, they are blaspheming him. When they're blaspheming God's name, they are blaspheming or shooting down or dirtying or muddying or spitting on his reputation or his character, or who he is. So it is a big deal to blaspheme the name of God. Because ultimately what it does is it cheapens who he is to everyone who hears. The person who goes around all day long taking God's name in vain, oh, Jesus Christ, God, oh, God, 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 Jesus. It cheapens his name. That person isn't very likely to actually call on the name of Jesus when they're in trouble. Because his name is nothing to them. It's a curse word. It's an insult. In the same way, God takes not only his holiness very seriously, but he takes the holiness of his name very, very seriously. So we'll see what happens. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring out of the camp he who has cursed. And let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. God takes his name deathly seriously. Deathly seriously. And so what was to happen is they were to take this man, this young man, take him outside the camp, and those who heard him, the witnesses, were to lay their hands on his head to symbolize, I heard him blaspheme God's name. And the entire congregation was to take part in stoning this man. Why? What, what's the purpose of that? They would all lay their hands on his head for this reason. The only way you could be executed in the camp of Israel for a capital punishment is if there were two or more eyewitnesses who saw you do it. And so the eyewitnesses are laying their hands on, on his head saying two things. First of all, saw you do it. You're guilty. And that's what is about to happen. You're guilty of a a capital sin, and so you're going to be stoned for it. And it's also this. If we're lying, as we put our hands on your head, if we're lying and you didn't really do this, your blood be on our hands. Your blood be on our hands. Which is why God continues to command Israel this. In verse 17, Whoever takes human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for a life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with the stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, so if you were to murder someone, that's a capital punishment. Okay, you'd be be killed for it. What was going to happen to this man would not be murder. It would be God's will being carried out, right? Justice happening. 
The wages, the consequences of sin is death. God commanded that he be put to death. So in killing this man, it was not murder. It was carrying out God's judgment, right? Now, if they were lying, it would be murder. And so God makes this distinction here. God makes it a point to say, whoever sheds the the blood of a man, his blood shall be shed. Then he makes an interesting law here. He says, now if you shed an animal's blood, if you kill an animal, that's not a, a death sentence. You just have to, you have to make it up, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Then he goes on to to say this. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As it's been done to you, so shall be done to them. Now, so many people take this and take the wrong thing out of it. They say, oh, well, look, God's such a vengeful God. And he allows people to take vengeance out on each other and get revenge. And, oh, you plucked out my eye, so now I get to take yours out. Look, that's not what's being suggested here. And God is not suggesting uh, that people be maimed. And he's not allowing people to get back at each other. That's not what's, what's happening here. Here's what's happening. If you came and knocked my tooth out, I would want to knock out your whole mouth full of teeth. You know what I mean? If you went and jabbed at my eye, I'm going to go for both of them. Right? If you came and, and killed a member of my family, I'm going to come after your whole family. What God is laying out, what he is establishing, is that the punishment must fit the crime. The punishment must fit the crime. You can't be killed, you can't be put to death for killing an animal. And so why is this man being put to death? Why is this man being stoned? Because he's committed, in a sense, deicide. He's gone out of his way to try and, in a sense, murder, try and murder God to the people of Israel by cursing his name. Do you understand? This is a serious thing when we try and diminish who God is to other people. God takes that very seriously. All sin against God is deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. And this is not one area that God lets up on. And so they did. They took this man outside the camp. They laid hands on him and they stoned him. What's the purpose of this chapter of Scripture? as we study the holiness of God and the holy standard for his people and the ways in which we fall short. Where does this chapter fit into play? Listen, family. God's presence and his name are holy. He's set apart. He is on the never-ending pedestal, and we should never forget that. He's the source of light and life. And he is the source of everything that you have. He is who provides for you. He is your sole source of provision. Anything good that we have comes from him. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so we should honor his name. We should lift him on high. We should proclaim him to the world, giving him glory always. Because he's the light. He's the life. He's the way, the truth. He's the bread of life, our provision, so that we could be made right with him. And I just want to point out in closing even though we didn't talk about it in our chapter here, we talked about the third piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It was what? The altar of incense. Incense, like I said, was a picture of what? Prayers. 
There were the prayers of the people being lifted up to heaven, and it was a sweet and a pleasing aroma before God. Why is this important? The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God, daily praying for you. Praying for you. Isn't that great? What's Jesus doing all day long, sitting at the right hand of God? What's he doing? Praying for you. Let's remember that. And let's be like Jesus as we, the church, are building phase three of the tabernacle. Let's be the light of the world. Let's continue to bring provision to the church so that we can provide for the needs of the community and of the world. And let's continue to pray. Not only spending time with the Lord and just hanging out with him, but praying for the needs of others. Because that's what Jesus does all day long for you. Let's continue reading through scripture together, family. Chapter a day. We looked at Leviticus chapter 24 today, so that means tomorrow's Leviticus chapter 25. Good job. Just add one. Continue to count. Gets really confusing after 27 because then it goes back to one. As we get out of the, look of the book of Leviticus and get into the book of Numbers, right? The book of Numbers, how to make life count, okay? So this week we'll be learning how to make life count through the book of Numbers. And next week we'll come back together. We'll take a look at the book of Numbers as a whole. See how it applies to our life. And take a look at, I believe, chapter 5. But let's read together, family, chapter a day, so that next week we'll all be on the same page. Pardon the pun. Father, thank you for this picture in your word of not only who Jesus is for us, God, that you came and chose to tabernacle, to dwell as a man here on earth. And commune with us, hang out with us. But you died on the cross bearing our sin so that we could be made right with you. That's amazing. I don't get it and we don't deserve it. But we're thankful. Help us to be your tabernacle. Help us to be your temple here on earth. Where you choose to dwell. God, I pray that people would come from all over and that when they see us, they would see your provision, that they would see your light, and that they would feel your prayers. God, help us to be faithful in this. You get it all, Lord, always. You get it all. All the glory, all the power, all the honor, all the praise, King. It's all yours. We are here obediently to give our lives to you. Whatever you want, we'll do it. We love you. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.